John chapter 1 clearly gives us a picture of how Jesus worked with chair one people. Those that are seeking, those that are investigating. What does it say in Luke 24 that Jesus did? It says simply as these two men were walking on the Emmaus road. It says he came and walked along with them. Jesus entered into the world and walked along with them. Verse 15 of Luke 24. And then he asked them questions. What are you discussing? Verse 17. And then he listened. And he listened to the tone of their voice. And he saw their faith. He says, why are you downcast? So he listened carefully. And then he goes on. He says, he heard what they were saying. And they had a lot of facts right. But they had drawn wrong conclusions. That saying that Jesus was just a prophet. And so what does Jesus do? He opens the scriptures, this tells us. He says he opens the scriptures, verse 27, 32, and explained to him what was said in the scriptures about him. All the way from Moses through the prophets. And then he challenged their conclusions, verse 38. Why do doubts arise? And then the Holy Spirit, verse 45, opened their minds so they could understand. You see, that's what chair one people need. They need believers like Jesus who will come into their world, walk alongside of them, ask them questions, listen to their hearts and to the words they're saying, help them get their facts right, open the scriptures, show how the scriptures point to Jesus as the coming king and the promised Messiah. And then pray like crazy that the Holy Spirit would open their mind to understand this truth. We need to bring lost people to the cross, to the foot of the cross where they can repent and believe and begin the journey as a Christ follower. Who are the chair one people God has put in your life? Well, it's great to see you all here this morning. Uh, if you're worshiping with us online this morning, we're delighted that you have joined us as well. We're in this series of four chairs, and today is the first chair. Now, the official name of this chair is called a camp chair. How many of you have a couple of these at home or in your vehicle? Let me see your hands if you've got chairs like this. Okay, how many of you consider yourselves to be campers? Yeah, that's what I figured. It's called a camp chair, but we use it for all different kinds of things because it's such a handy chair. It's portable. Folds up easy for storage and transport. I mean, let's take a look at this picture. Have you ever seen anybody carrying a chair like this to an upward soccer game out on the front lawn on a Saturday? Of course not. You don't carry chairs around like that for sporting events. You take this kind of a chair. Like this chair, it's a little bit more of a deluxe model. It has a cup holder for, you know, some refreshment that keeps you... Nice and comfortable. It also has a zippered pocket here on the side where you can keep your sermon CDs. It's just got a lot of good things to enjoy. But um, I will tell you this. This is not a comfortable chair. When I sit down in this chair, it is not because I want to be comfortable. This is, a, this is not a chair I want to relax in. I mean, I can sit for a while, but, you know, I, I end up twisting around a little bit more because it's hard to find a comfortable spot. This is not a chair for relaxing. It's not a chair for reading in. This is not the chair I want to watch the cold snatch to feed out of the jaws of victory while I'm sitting in. <laughs> this is a chair that says I'm on the move. I haven't decided where to put down roots. I'm just here casually or temporarily. I don't have one place I belong like a dining room chair or like a fireplace wingback 
chair. No, I'm seeking where I fit best. Now, that's why we've chosen this chair to represent chair number one in this series, the seeker chair. You see, a seeker is a person who is spiritually on the move, who has not yet decided where to put down roots of faith, if ever. It's the person who doesn't feel as if he or she belongs to any spiritual one family, who still is just sticking their toe into the waters of faith. They have lots of questions. They struggle with doubts. They want to be certain before they make some kind of a choice. They may have lived through a bad spiritual experience in the past. They may have grown up around a lousy hypocritical example of faith that left them cold and empty. One thing is for sure. They're not comfortable. They're not comfortable with their faith discoveries. They're not comfortable with their doubts. And so they keep on seeking spirit answers to spiritual questions. They are on the move. Now, I may describe you this morning. You may be a seeker. You may be the person who's been hurt in the past. You may be the kind of person who's spiritually on the move because you just can't find a place or a reason or a purpose to sink your roots. You may be a Christian today, but I'll tell you what, if you are, you know somebody who's a seeker. We either are a seeker or we know a seeker this morning who is trying to answer the questions. Now, there are certain seekers in the scripture. You know, you don't have to read very far in the New Testament to come across some of them. Uh, in our summer series, we talked about Nicodemus who set up his camp chair with Jesus at night because he was afraid of being seen with this controversial rabbi. Now, there's a lot of things we could say about old Nick at night, but bottom line, he was seeking spiritual answers. Wasn't sure if he was turning to the right source or not. There's the rich young aristocrat who came to Jesus earnestly seeking an answer, and so he sets up his chair next to Jesus with this question. What must I do, good teacher, to inherit eternal life? Jesus, knowing that the young man had a penchant for wealth, looked at him and said, go and sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, come follow me, and then you'll find treasures in heaven. That wasn't the answer he was looking for. So he packed up his chair and moved on. Then there was the man whose young mute son was demon-possessed. He plopped down his chair next to Jesus and began to explain the fact that the boy couldn't talk wasn't the worst problem at all. He was demon-possessed, and the demon had often thrown him to the ground in convulsions or tried to drown him in water or burn him in fire. And then the desperate father, not yet convinced about the claims of Jesus, uttered this half-hearted, tentative thought, almost as an afterthought. Mark records it in chapter 9. It says, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, why, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. There's the seeker. I'm struggling with the faith. I'm struggling with the answers. I'm trying to find the truth. Help me, Lord, with my unbelief. Jesus cast out the demon, restored the boy to the father. Mark leaves us hanging about the man's faith. Did that moment change him? Or did he pack up his chair and take it home with the boy? Not sure yet if Jesus was the one. 
Then there's the woman with the bleeding disease that no one could cure. She came seeking the Lord's touch, but the crowd was so overpowering that she decided she was the one that would have to do the touching. Just the fringe of his garment now, that would be sufficient. After all, with her disease, she really shouldn't have been out in the crowd in the first place. But when she reached out and touched the ebb edge of Jesus' robe, she was instantly healed by the power of God. Jesus knew it, confronted her about it, and then encouraged her faith. She went home that day without her chair because she'd crossed the line from seeker to believer. She knew this was the very son of of God. And those that filled the role of the apostles, well, I think there were some seekers in that group too. John's is the only one to give us this brief glimpse into Nathaniel's introduction. John writes in chapter 1, verse 43, 43, it says, the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets who wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, Philip said. There's the invitation. That's what the seeker's trying to find. Come and see, said Philip. And when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I suspect with a smile. I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Come and see. Come and see. There are days when I think that it would have been a lot easier to believe 2,000 years ago in Jesus. If I could have come face to face with him, if I could have seen with my own eyes some of the miraculous moments of his ministry, if I could have heard with my own ears the powerful preaching of our Lord, maybe it would have been a lot easier to believe. I mean, after all, I don't have a natural bias towards Samaritans like they did in Israel. And, and I don't avoid Gentiles like the plague. I am a Gentile. And I don't have this quest to throw off the Roman Empire's power over me and elevate Israel to once again the nation of nations in that part of the world. I, I don't, that's not what it is. What's more, I have an image in my mind of Jesus. How about you? When you think of Jesus, we don't have any pictures of him. We don't know exactly what Jesus looked like. You know, we have artist conceptions. In your mind, don't you have an image of Jesus? I mean, I have an image of his, of his stature, of his manner, of his voice when he speaks. Don't you? What if, what if Jesus was six inches shorter than me with a strong, crooked nose and a squeaky voice? Would, would I have been so easily convinced that this was God in the flesh? Maybe. Maybe it wasn't any easier to believe then than it is now. Maybe the seekers had as many doubts then as, as we do now. You see, I think if it had been easy to believe, then everybody would have believed. And not everybody believed. This I do know for certain. When it comes to seeking... Jesus welcomed the seeker, encouraged the seeker, invited the seeker, spent time with the seeker, gave hope and purpose to the seeker, and ultimately brought life to the seeker. So how do you suppose Jesus would want us, his people, to treat those who are seeking? 
Let's just talk about that for a few minutes this morning, church. What does the seeker need in us? Now, if you're a seeker this morning, I'm, first of all, really glad you're here. Second of all, I want to hear from you after the service is over this morning. Uh, I'd like to know. I'd like to know what I missed in this message, what I messed up in this message. Because, you see, uh, I want to know how I can come alongside of you in your journey and being a help, not a hindrance. The last thing I want to do is be a hindrance to you. And you see, we're, in, in essence, we're all seekers. We're just at different, different places on this continuum. Some of us have crossed the line of unbelief to faith. Some of us seekers are still on the other side of that line, trying to figure out, is he the one I should follow? But we're all seeking at some point, in some way, in some form, in some fashion. Here's the crisis as I see it. If we truly believe that being in a relationship with God the Father happens only through the forgiveness secured by the sacrifice of Jesus at the cross on our behalf, and if we truly believe that there is an afterlife determined by whether or not we acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord in this life, then what does it say about us when we keep that knowledge to ourselves? What kind of a Christian lives as if this is a non-issue? What kind of a person says, well, I'm glad I know the Lord, but don't expect any help from me. I don't care if I help you find faith in him. Yeah, there were, I was a seeker once and somebody helped me, but good luck, fella, because I'm not going to give you any answers. Now, I know that sounds harsh, and I know that none of us would verbalize it like that. But I wonder, I wonder, do my actions convey that's how I feel. You see, Christian, we're in a world of seekers. What do they see in us? The most important question we can talk about this morning is what do they need to see in us? What do they need to experience from us? And there are scads of things we can talk about, but I've narrowed it down to three this morning just, just for this sermon. And, and, and I'm going to give them to you quickly. Here's the first one. Chair one seekers need Christ followers in their lives who are authentic. Who are authentic. <laughs> a boy sitting next to his dad in church whispered in his ear, Dad, what's a Christian? The father replied, well, son, a Christian is a person who loves and obeys God. He loves his friends and neighbors and even his enemies. He prays often, acts joyfully, and is kind to others. Plus, he's more interested in going to heaven than having anything this world offers. That son is a Christian. Huh, the boy said. Have I ever seen one? <laughs> Have I ever seen one? Has the seeker ever really seen one? I was reminded again this week of how hard it is, actually how discouraging it is to be a part of wait staff in restaurants on Sundays. It, this didn't happen on Sunday. I was talking to a, a member of a wait staff in one of our local restaurants and they were sharing with me. They didn't know I was a minister. And I was glad they didn't know that. But they were pouring out their frustration at Sundays. It, it's not just because it's maybe poor tips. It's the rudeness of, of, of people after church. It is sometimes the demeaning nature of people after church. It was, it, it's, that, it's that heartache of serving people who kind of maybe look down on you. Now, 
Now, I know you all. I, I know you're not. I don't know where these people are coming from on Sundays that treat people like this. But if I knew what church they were from, I'd ask that church to leave town. How about you? <laughs> all I'm trying to tell you is that, that it's easy. It's easy here inside this room to be who we ought to be. But you walk out these doors, you've got to remember that there are people that are watching and thinking and, and seeking Jesus in us. And when they feel just the opposite, they pack up their chairs and they go away looking for answers elsewhere. Be careful who you are when you walk out these doors. Be authentic in your lifestyle. Be who you say you are. Only a secret disciple of Jesus can get away with insincerity. <laughs> then again, can a sincere Christian be a secret? I don't think so. So you see the dilemma. You get the point. In my teen years, church camp had a huge impact on my life. The lives of men and women who served in those weeks of camp inspired me. And then they challenged me to think about ministry. And I, I, I will tell you, it was in camp. I was 16 years old. I've told you this story before. I came to the decision. I felt compelled that God wanted me in ministry. Those wonderful leaders linger in my memories as spiritual heroes. I know their names. I remember where they served. I remember some of the things they said. They impacted my life. There was one, however, who unintentionally taught me an important lesson on authenticity. He came to camp in a 1948 Chrysler, the same color as the one that my grandfather had driven. And you know, you know me well enough to know I am enamored. I love old cars. And so I was always going up and looking at the Chrysler. And so one afternoon, he asked if I wanted to go for a drive. Sure, I said. And I jumped into the passenger seat and we drove out of camp. Just outside of camp property, he lit up a cigar. Now, growing up, I was around a lot of men who enjoyed cigars. That's not the part that bothered me. I had just never seen a preacher smoke a cigar, and I was taken back. Come on, folks. If, if we walked out after the service, and I went out door one, and I lit up a big old stogie, you'd, you'd look twice, wouldn't you? <laughs> sure you would. Sure you would. I mean, you'd think, oh, I'm not sure about it. Okay, that's kind of how I'm feeling here. But, but what bothered me most was this. He explained he took the drive after every afternoon because he had to slip away from camp to enjoy the cigar because he didn't want anyone to see him or know about it. I guess he figured I wouldn't say a word, and I didn't. But that was my first encounter with a preacher who worked so hard to find, to hide an activity that he was ashamed of that he couldn't or wouldn't change. And he used a classy old car as his cover. Oh. <laughs> I don't remember his name. I don't remember where he preached. But I learned a valuable lesson on the negative power of pretense. None of us are perfect, especially those of us in ministry. We're not perfect. All of us need grace and mercy, but anything less than a sincere, authentic life will cause the seeker to turn away and run from Jesus because they have not seen him in us. And they'll look for the truth elsewhere. Why? Because nobody likes a pretentious person, but especially when that person claims to be a follower of the most authentic person that ever walked on the face of the earth. 
John Bevere wrote this. He said, if we are going to be authentic and relevant, we must embrace truth and allow it to transform us at our very core. It's got to start inside. And if it starts inside, it'll spread outside. It can't just be on the outside. And every seeker needs transformation. And I know of only one who's capable of bringing that transformation. And so once transformed, we must be genuinely concerned about the spiritual well-being of those around us who need Jesus Christ. We must invest time, energy, resources, and love them. But if you can't be authentic, then don't invest in them at all because it'll have more of a negative than a positive effect. Be sincere. Be authentic. Be genuine. The seeker is watching. Be careful who you are when you walk out these doors. Because that's where it matters. Here's the second thing. Chair one seekers need Christ followers in their lives who will invest in friendship. Back in July, Elsie graciously accompanied me as, uh, as I attended my 45th high school class reunion. It's nice. It's okay. But I was a bit disappointed. The only ones to show up are old people. I felt like I was in a rerun of the Twilight Zone. What happened to my friends? I'm sure they were thinking the same thing about me. Sometimes it takes something like a class reunion to remind us of the importance of friendship. Those people who I hadn't been around much since we graduated 45 years ago were the kids who helped shape my life. They were the kids, the friends that I grew up with. Their friendships made a difference in my life. And our friendships today, we got to remember, can do the same thing. They will make an impact in other people's lives. Proverbs 17, 17 says, a friend loves at all times. Looking at the life of Jesus, it is apparent that he viewed being a friend as important. He addressed his disciples as friends. He was also a friend to the little children who flocked to him. The Jewish leaders accused him of being a friend to tax collectors and sinners, an accusation that Jesus never refuted. And though he would momentarily raise Lazarus at the tomb, he paused and wept for his friend who was dead inside those walls. Even when Judas approached him with the kiss of death, Jesus responded, friend, friend, do what you came to do. I guess this is what I'm saying. Take the Jesus approach to others. Look for ways to be friends to others. Here's just some thoughts. Don't wait for others to approach you. You reach out first, okay? Open your eyes. Genuinely see the people that you encounter at every facet of life. We just go about things so casually. Learn the names of the folks who work behind the counters at the convenience stores or the grocery checkouts or other places that you might be so busy in your mind that you don't even stop to think about or look. Don't let friendship happen accidentally. Be intentional. And when you are intentional, it's amazing. Seemingly accidental encounters will happen. Be interested in others first instead of expecting them to be interested in you. Learn to listen more and talk less. That one's hard for me. Be hospitable to those who may not be able to be hospitable in return. Seek first to understand before you seek to be understood. Love the unlovable unconditionally. That doesn't require you to condone actions that are contrary to God's standards. Jesus never condoned sinful behavior, but he was nevertheless a friend. He was never 
less than compassionate toward those who had sinned. I, I wish I could tell you I practice these things all the time. I don't. I should. But I don't. Like all of us, I just get caught up in life and forget to practice the important things. I want to change the way I look at those around me. I hope you do too. I, I, I want to be looking outside these walls for friends who are seeking Jesus. Proverbs 18.24 says, One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. That's what I want us to be. I want us to be a congregation that sticks closer to seekers than siblings stick to one another. Here's the last thing. Chair one seekers need Christ followers in their lives who can present the gospel. And you're saying, there it is. I knew that was coming. This is the part that scares me to death. I can't answer, answer all those tough biblical questions about predestination versus free will. Or which end times prophecy interpretation is the right one. Or I can't even distinguish between what justification is and sanctification is. All I know is that I cannot face the uncertainty of tomorrow without the certainty of knowing Jesus as my Savior. Aha, there it is. If that's all you know, that you can't face the uncertainty of tomorrow without the certainty of knowing Jesus as your Savior, then you understand the heartbeat of the gospel. The word gospel simply means good news. And the good news is this. We have all sinned, every last one of us, so consequently our relationship with God is broken. But God, being perfectly authentic and perfectly relational, sent his son to bridge the gap by becoming our Savior. When he paid our penalty for our sin, he made it possible for us to be restored to the Father and have everlasting life. That's good news. Many seekers don't want the answer to the tough questions. They, they may not even know the words justification or sanctification. That's okay. What they do want to know is why are you a follower of Jesus? What does he mean to you? What difference in your life has Jesus made? And that's a story that you already know. That's not something you, that you have to learn. That's not some kind of a slick plan that you go through point by point by point. Don't get me off my track. I've, I've got it memorized. People don't want that. They just want you to be able to say, this is why Jesus matters most in my life. Like Philip with Nathaniel. Ah, come and see. Come and see what difference Jesus has made in my life. Peter reminded the ancient church with these words. He said, but in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Isn't that awesome? Peter said, always be ready to give an answer, but do it with gentleness and respect. You see, that is what the seeker is looking for. Why do you follow? What difference has Jesus made? And they want to hear it through gentle, respectful words, actions, ears, and folks. There's a Native American proverb that reads like this. When you were born, you cried, and the world rejoiced. Live your life in such a manner that when you die, the world cries, and you rejoice. As heaven looms in the future... Make sure that in the present you are living an authentic, relational, good news-focused, Christ-centered life.
That kind of existence will help a seeker leave this chair, this chair, far behind in the dust and cross that line from seeker to believer. Do you know Jesus this morning? That's where the journey really begins. That's where the journey changes forever. If you're a seeker this morning, that's probably not enough time for you to make that choice. I get that. But if you've been contemplating this for a long time, today may be the day when you say, all right, I'm going to step over this line. I'm going to fold this chair up once and for all, set it aside, and become a follower of Jesus. Your decision. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.